We're looking at the book of the Acts of the Apostles, part 22. The book of the Acts of the Apostles, part 22. Last week, we took a spiritual perspective to the questions. What kingdom? Which Israel? What timing? By looking at the domination of the human race by the ruler of this world, also known as that old serpent, the devil and Satan. It was he who, in the Garden of Eden, used the serpent to beguile Eve. Who then got her husband to partake in her sin, and from then on sin has dominated mankind. It became clear that Satan uses a well-organized hierarchy of very wicked spirits and human agents, principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, sin, the flesh, that is the nature of man that loves to sin, that is still alive and active in some people, leaders of world religions and ideologies, People who have partnered with Satan through the occult and cults and false ministers of the gospel and church leaders who choose to live by worldly standards. He uses these things of these people and spirits to oppress and dominate mankind. We saw that Satan's approach to keeping and bringing men in subjection to his authority has not changed. And it includes deceit, trickery, guile or cunning craftiness and... Fear. If anyone under Satan's domination is to be free from his evil rule, such a person must have faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary through repentance. This faith in Jesus, is, in Jesus Christ is demonstrated when the individual believes what he has heard from the word of God about Jesus' finished work at Calvary as payment for the redemption of mankind from Satan's domination. And then the individual is brought into the kingdom of the Son of God, much more than merely reciting some creed, is a deliberate surrender and submission of one's entire being to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who then takes charge of that individual's life henceforth, lest the individual slide back into the kingdom of Satan. I have found as I go out, particularly every Sunday, especially rather every Sunday, to share the word of God to people I find around. There are many people who go to church who are not saved. There are many people who attend church meetings who don't even know what it means to be saved. And I found it necessary every time to explain what the gospel is all about. Maybe I should take some time to do that before we press forward. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, sin transferred to all human beings, whether you did anything wrong or not, even a newborn baby, has sin in, in him or her. And by reason of that sin, that newborn baby grows and acquires more sins. So sin begets sin over time. It gets to a point where, even though you know that this thing I am doing is wrong, you are unable to help yourself. It is the nature of sin in man that makes man to cooperate with sin rather than with God. But deep inside every man is a cry for deliverance. Is a cry for help from God. And whenever a man finds it within himself to seek this God, the only way by which he gets delivered from the stranglehold of sin is to go through Jesus Christ, the one who has paid the price of sin on the cross at Calvary. When Jesus Christ came, he came to live a sinless life. He came to tell us so many things about what the Lord, about what God requires of us and to live and show us how man can actually live and please God. When he died, the sins of all of mankind was put upon him. And so he paid the price for sin. Henceforth, no man needs to carry the burden of sin upon himself. For one 
has carried that burden for him. So what should we do? When a man realizes his sinfulness and goes to God in prayer, it must be on the basis of what Jesus Christ did on the cross at Calvary. Any other thing that he brings before God is not accepted. Because only Christ was the perfect offering, the perfect sacrifice that God accepts. I need to explain a little bit more by using Judaism. In those days, when a man comes before God, he comes with an animal. And before he can even say anything to God, he must place his hands on that animal. By so doing, he's transferring his sins upon the animal. So when the priest slides the throat of that animal and spills the blood of the animal, that did nothing wrong. The only justification for killing that animal was that that animal now has sin because I laid my hands on the animal. So the animal dies for my sins and I'm free. But I had to do it often and often and often. But when Jesus Christ came, he took away all those animal sacrifices. He became that perfect lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And whenever we do that and we come to God on that basis, repenting and confessing our sins before God, we become a part of the family of God. Three things immediately begin to work in us. Number one, we have joy. Even though we still are poor, even though things have scattered all around us, we have joy. And it's an internal joy. It's not happiness. This is joy that wells up from within us because of the deposit of the Spirit of God that is within that man who has confessed. Secondly, we have peace. This is peace with God. We are able to go to God. Suddenly, the God that we are afraid of, we are able to approach Him. We are able to speak with Him. And thirdly, we not only now know what is right from what is wrong, we now have the power to always do what is right. This is the gamut of salvation. Anybody who, does, who has not gone through this, has not experienced this, and is going to church, is wasting his time. It is not going to stand him in any good stead in eternity. In fact, what that fellow is going to hear is, get away from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. But those who go on the basis of what Christ did on the cross at Calvary, and make that confession, and seek after him, and begin to walk with him when they die on the earth and get to heaven. They will be welcomed with open arms and be given a place in the kingdom of God. My prayer is, there's anybody here who has not yet done that. By the time we are through with our discussion tonight, you will come and we will pray with you. And you will experience these three things I mentioned. Joy, peace, and righteousness in your hearts. Let's read our main text today, Acts chapter 1, verse 6 to 8. And we shall also be reading Luke chapter 17, from verse 20 to 37. Acts 1, 6 to 8, and Luke chapter 17, from verse 20 to verse 37. Acts 1, 6 to 8. Therefore, when they, that is Jesus' disciples, had come together, they asked him, that is Jesus, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Praise the name of the Lord. You are aware of this uh, main scripture is what we've been discussing for some time now. And uh, we, are going to, we want to move from verse 6. Even though we're looking at verse 6, but we're, we're now going to begin to look at what the Lord began to discuss in verse 7 and verse 8. But before we go into that, let's read Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. I'll be reading from verse 20 to 37. That's from verse 20 to the end. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees 
when the kingdom of God would come, which is the same thing as similar to what the uh, disciples asked. Here they were asking about the kingdom of God specifically. They said, when will it come? He answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is where? Within you. Then he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. What he's saying is that there is, you, nobody will tell you Jesus is here, go here. Just no. Every man will see him when he comes. He's not going to be hiding in a corner. He's, he's going to be there for everybody to see. So when people are saying, oh, come to our church, Jesus is here, come to this church, Jesus is here, he's everywhere. No one church has the prerogative to say, oh, it's only here that you have Jesus Christ. Anywhere the truth is being taught and spoken, Christ is there. Verse 24, uh, verse 25 rather. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, the married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Don't return home. Remember Lord's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. And they answered and said to him, We are Lord. So he said to them, Wherever the body is, the eagles will be gathered together. Praise the name of the Lord. Amen. What that last verse is saying is that anytime you have a dead body, you don't need to make an announcement. What happens? You see vultures gather. That's what he's saying. Wherever he is, those who are his will gather. You will not need to be, you will, go, when, at that point in time, by the Spirit of God, you will gather. We have seen that while Jesus' disciples' question was about a natural time of restoration to a natural kingdom of a natural Israel, the Lord's response and communication on the matter was based purely from a spiritual perspective. In the world that we live in, there are not only natural forces at work, but there are also spiritual forces at work. And we discussed that last week, when we mentioned the princes of the kingdoms, when we mentioned Satan's hierarchy and his kingdom, when we mentioned the trickery and all the things that happen, how we find um, principalities and powers ruling and, 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 and influencing kings to do things. Indeed, the spiritual world influences and controls the natural or physical world, as we evidently saw when we looked at the horns and craftsmen of Zechariah's vision and the princes 
of Daniel's revelation. So this evening we want to look at again the king, which what kingdom, which Israel, what timing, and under this we want to look at the natural versus the spiritual, the natural versus the spiritual. While Jesus' disciples were asking about a natural time of restoration of the kingdom to Israel, the Lord was talking of time in a spiritual sense. He said, it is not for you to know times and seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. And this is what we are going to be discussing this evening. While they were asking about a natural rule, reign and realm or kingdom, the Lord was referring to a spiritual rule, a spiritual reign, a spiritual realm or spiritual kingdom. And while they were referring to natural Israel, the Lord was speaking of a spiritual Israel. We are going to look at these things over the next few weeks. We're going to look at the timing, we're going to look at the uh, Israel, and we're going to look at the kingdom. Such misrepresentation of spiritual for natural is very common. Even when people try to interpret scripture apart from the Holy Spirit. Such was the case of the Pharisees in our second scripture text. Who wanted to know when the kingdom of God would come. As though it was something that was going to be physically put on the earth. And the Lord told, told them, no, you, it's not coming by observation. It's, it is in the hearts of men. For many of us, the kingdom is already there. And let me explain this to you. Last week we mentioned that whosoever you obey to follow, that person is your master. Is that not so? That person is your Lord. If you are under the kingdom of God, you will follow everything that God says. So that the kingdom of God today is in the hearts of men. We're going to be able to expound on this over the next few weeks. And the Lord will help us to do that appropriately. So when a man, for example, is listening not to the word of God, but to another word, he is not in the kingdom of God, but what kingdom is he under now? He's under the kingdom of Satan. We've said there are essentially two kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Whoever your master is, whoever you follow, whoever's word you are listening to, that fellow is your Lord. It's that kingdom that you belong to. Uh, and so we continue. It is our prayer that the Holy Spirit will quicken understanding in our hearts as we look at the natural versus the spiritual as it relates to the kingdom of Israel and the time of restoration in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll concentrate on the aspect of time today. And may the Lord help us to achieve our goal in Jesus' name. Now, the Lord's disposition to the matter of time or timing of the restoration of the kingdom to Israel is evident in the answer that he gave. In verse 7, when he said, of course, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority or in his own power, according to King James. Now, if we are not to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, then what are we supposed to be doing? I discovered that many people are spending effort, energy, trying to find out when will the end come. They, in fact, some people have whole meetings where they discuss the end. The things that will happen. Even the Lord Jesus himself when he was speaking. He merely spoke about the signs of the end time. He never mentioned a particular date. Many people have mentioned dates. They've mentioned years. They've mentioned hours and months. And they've all failed. At one time it was 1986. I wasn't even born again at the time. Thank God. It failed. Then some people mentioned 1996. It failed. In fact, as recently as June 2016, last year was mentioned, and, and, and at it failed. It will always fail, because it is in only the power of the Father. Even the Son doesn't know when. So, what should be happening? Let's go to Second Peter, chapter 3. 
And I think uh, Brother David mentioned, broached some of the verses there that we shall be looking at. One or two of the verses that we shall be looking at tonight. Second Peter 3, verse 8 to 12. Second Peter 3, verse 8 to 12. But beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. So when God is speaking of day, sometimes he could be talking of years. And sometimes... Some people will think of years and God might just be talking of one day. Let me just say this. Whenever the Lord speaks to you, He expects you to ask certain questions. Ask. And He will explain to you. Don't assume. Many people just assume things and begin to run around the place and say they are prophesying. You need to understand the language of God, the way and manner that God speaks. And many people don't understand that. The Bible says that God is the one that calls the things that do not exist as though they already existed. So, when God is speaking, many of us look at, it will happen now. Meanwhile, God is speaking of something that will happen in the future. In verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. When we say, why is God delaying? Why is God delaying? Sometimes we are being selfish. Because there are souls yet unsaved, that ought to be saved. And God is stretching it and stretching it and stretching it so that those who need to be saved will come into the kingdom. Sometimes we are the ones delaying it because we are not going out to preach. We are not explaining the gospel as we explain, as we ought to explain. We fill our churches with people who don't have understanding of what the, what the scriptures are saying. And many of them don't even know what they are doing. If, if Christ were to come today, about 90% of those who have gone to church will miss out on, 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 on the kingdom of God. Because there is nobody teaching them the truth that is in the word of God. And God is patiently waiting for opportunity for many of us who say we know to go out there and begin to teach and begin to tell people the real truth. In verse 10 it says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Thieves don't make announcements. They will just strike. In which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? If these things will be destroyed, should we focus on those things? Should we be focusing on something else? What kind of person should we be? What kind of human being should we be? What should be our focus? That's the question. If nobody knows about the time, our focus should not be on the time. Our focus should be on what should we be doing between now and when that time comes? And since it comes as a thief in the night, nobody knows. There's one phrase. Be prepared at all times. Be prepared at all. You live as if it will end today. And you live also as if it will take decades to end. So those who need to go to school, go to school. Get a degree. Do all that you need to do. But as you are doing all of that, remember, it can happen tonight. Do you understand that? Verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Like I said earlier, we are the ones delaying it. They say, let us hasten that day. How do we hasten it? Go out and preach the good news. Go out and tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ. Go out and teach the word of God, so that the, His coming can be put. Now, because of the delay, because of this, uh, what, 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 what we call this, this, this period of grace, and of mercy that God has extended to all of mankind. Some people have themselves become scoffers. If you go to verse 1 through to verse 4 of Second Peter 3. 
It says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fall asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. They say, when is he coming? All this coming, coming, coming. Where is he? Where is he now? He says, come, he says, come. And many people have actually left the faith. Many people have fallen away. Many people have gotten frustrated and discouraged because they don't know the scriptures. And God does not want us to be ignorant. That's why we find ourselves having to get to a, a particular verse, and instead of rushing through, the Lord says, no, take your time. I want to explain some things to these people. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 1 to 3, and verse 23 to 27. Daniel 9, 1 to 3, and 23 to 27. We, we will begin to see how God views time. It's even from the way we view time. First and foremost, in today's, in the age that we are in, our calendar is what, we, what is known as a Gregorian calendar. So we have... Three years that have 365 days, and the fourth year has 366 days with a leap year. But if you look at the Old Testament calendar, the Old Testament calendar was a 360-day year and 12 month, 12, um, 30 days to each month. It was 360. But we use a 365 calendar, whereas the Old Testament time, they used a 360-day calendar, which was given to them by God. So ideally, we should be using that kind of a calendar. So if you look at, if you go to Israel, for example, their calendar is even from our calendar. The Muslims also fashion their calendar differently. We are the ones who use the Gregorian system of calendar. Now, something happened, and we're going to read it now. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1 to 3. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1 to 3. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayers and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. So he read, and he understood, wait a minute, it's 70 years. Babylon had been swept away. Uh, there was an interregnum, actually. Because what you had there was Darius before the first Persian actually took over. So Darius was there for some time. And it was while he was reading the, the prophecy of Jeremiah that it struck him that, wait a minute, it's about the time of the 70th year. And he began to pray. Went into time of prayer and confession and other things. We know of that. Now we'll skip to verse 23. When God sent an angel to him and began to explain some things to Daniel. In 23, he says, At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved, therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. You must understand the use of language here. A week is how many days? Seven. So, seventy sevens are determined for who? Who are those people now? Israel, you must understand that. They are determined for the nation of Israel and for the holy city, which is the city of Jerusalem. So while Jeremiah was praying about 70 years, God was telling him about what? 77, making 490 years. And then he continues, to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, 
to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. He's talking about the end of everything. There are 77 determined that will bring an end to everything. 490 years. In verse 25 it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. A total of how many weeks now? 69 weeks. If you look at it in terms of the sevens, that will be 483 years. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. Who's the Messiah now? The Lord Jesus Christ. Shall be killed. But not for himself. He did not die for himself. He died for the sins of mankind. Do you understand? He didn't die because he sinned. He died because of the sins of mankind. Not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city. Who is this prince to come now? Remember the, the princes of the kingdom that we discussed under the prince of, one of the princes under Satan. They will come and destroy the, the city. That was the time of Rome. The prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. These are the things that made many people to assume, in fact, in the days of um, uh, Paul and Peter and the apostles, some people went about saying, oh, the end has already come. These people are just wasting time. In verse 27 it says, then he, that is, um, that, that prince, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. We are talking of a principality and a prince under, the king, under a human kingdom shall confirm covenant with many for one week. What is that week now? Seven years. Do you understand that? Okay. But in the middle of the week, in the middle of that seven years, that is three and a half years, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. I need to explain this to us. What God had told Daniel was a summary of everything from start to finish. So he told Daniel that from the time a particular king will be in place, till... The time that the Messiah is cut off, there will be 69 weeks, a total of 483 years. Now, Bible scholars have looked at this and they've done the timing and they realized that Christ was actually crucified on, dead on that time. It didn't shift, it didn't miss. So, 483 years after Christ was crucified. But there's one seven left. Is that not so? 697, there's one seven that is left. What is happening to that one seven? Don't forget, division is about who? About Daniel's people about natural Israel. So there's a, 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 a one week left. What has happened between the 69 weeks and that one week? That's what we are living in now. It's called the age of grace or the age of the Gentiles. God has allowed a period of time when the Gentiles will now hear the message of salvation and will be brought in. So there is still one week only for the nation of Israel. That is the only time that the nation of Israel will have opportunity and it's those who don't get saved now will have opportunity to be saved. And incidentally, the people to be saved are already known. They are 144,000. They are virgins. They are not going to be married. They are already known. But that time is kept. There was an interruption as it were. We interrupted it. The salvation of the Gentiles came as an interruption. And so 43 years have been accomplished for Israel. One more year is left. Right now is the age of the Gentiles. It's the time for the Gentiles to be saved. It's also the time for any Jew to be saved at this time. It is strange, therefore, that we go on trips to to Israel, and we don't even seek to tell the Jews about salvation. It was very difficult because Jesus was a Jew. Yet, we need to preach it in the place of prayer. 
but we don't. The bottom line is, there is a timing, and only God knows that time. When God was speaking to Daniel about the 490 years, anybody who didn't, understand, who didn't live to see what we are seeing today would assume the 490 years to be one block, and yet it's divided. In fact, that last seven that they're talking about, if you read about the last seven, you will see that it's talking about the time of tribulation. It's talking about what will happen in time. There is going to be a prince, and that's the Antichrist, who will arise. The only man that can bring peace, the only man that can bring peace to the Middle East is the Antichrist. Anybody, all these people who are saying, oh, they want to break peace, they can never bring peace to the Middle East. The day you find a man, a world leader, who successfully brings peace to the Middle East, that is the Antichrist. And from the time the Antichrist is revealed, the church must be taken away. Because it is the church that is preventing the iniquity of the Antichrist to, be mat- to, to, to take place as it should take place. So once the Antichrist is revealed, the church is raptured. And then he will maintain that peace for about three and a half years. At the end of three and a half years, he's going to go into Jerusalem, march into Jerusalem, and make all the sacrifices to cease. So those Judaizers who have been offering, all the sacrifices will be, will be ended. Then the greater tribulation will take off in the second half of the three and a half years. At the end of that second half of the three and a half years, that is the end of the seventh year, he is going to make war against Jerusalem, against that city, against Israel. It is on that day that Christ will return with his army. And many of us, those who are saved, those who eventually are saved ultimately, will ride into Jerusalem with him. The war of Armageddon is not the kind of war that we are talking of fighting with swords. It's going to be the war of words. The Bible says that he has a sword in his mouth, which is the word of God. The word will be spoken and millions will fall. There will be so many dead that they will need to call birds. God will invite birds to come and... Because you will not be able to bury all the dead that day. So that's what God was saying here. So while Daniel was looking at 70 years, God was looking at what? 490 years, which already has an interruption. So you cannot be calculating times based on what he said. And many people, like I said earlier, we make the mistake of not understanding the language of God. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. In fact, somebody said that a man of God said that God lied here. But I want to believe that he was misquoted. I don't believe any man of God would open his mouth and say God told a lie. I want to believe that he was misquoted in saying that many would think that God lied. Maybe that's what he said. He couldn't have said that God lied. Genesis chapter 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Is that in your Bible? Now, let me ask you a question. When Adam ate of that tree, did he die? So what was God talking about? Actually, Adam died. He died spiritually that day. But he lived 900 plus years later to die natural, before dying natural. How do we know that he died spiritually on that day? Number one, he was naked. He suddenly realized he was naked. That was the end. He, he was alive spiritually because of the glory of God that covered him. Then we know that he tried to cover himself by making leaves. That's what we have today. People who are, who are designing clothes, trying to cover themselves, and yet they are exposing everything. Only God can truly cover up a man. And then, of course, he was booted out of the garden. Actually, an act of mercy. So that he doesn't eat of the, of the, of the tree of life. Because if he, if he ate of the tree of life in the state of sin, he will be a sinner forever. And God forbid, because everyone else after Adam would have been a sinner forever. That's why demons can never repent. They can never repent. The man has every opportunity to repent. In Romans chapter 5, 
verse 19. Romans chapter 5, verse 19. The Bible says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Once Adam sinned, sin entered the world. That is, you know, don't forget, we are looking at what? The natural versus the spiritual. In the natural, he ate the fruit. But he had a far-reaching spiritual impact. Everybody that is born of woman on the earth is a sinner. From birth. Now, the same way the sin entered into the, into the world through Adam, he says, Christ's obedience to the Father brought righteousness to mankind. So, in a spiritual sense, what Christ did in the natural has a great spiritual implication, which is the salvation of mankind. Do you understand that? So, it's, 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 it may be happening in the natural, yet it's a spiritual phenomenon. We must understand the two. That there's a natural and there's a, and, and there's a spiritual. The spiritual actually overrides the natural. The spiritual is more potent than the natural. Things always happen in the spiritual before we see them manifest in the natural. In a lot of things that when God speaks to us, He speaks to us in spiritual language. By the time we see it manifesting in the natural, that's when we really understand a lot of the things that God is saying. More often than not, we don't understand. So we must be able to appreciate the difference between the spiritual and the natural. To further explain this, 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Verse 1. Let's read verse 1 first. We're going to read verse 1 and then we'll read verse 13 and 14. 1 Samuel 16 verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided myself a king among his sons. What did God say about King Saul? He said, I have rejected him from being king over my people. But please, was Saul not still king? He was king. But God said, I have rejected him. In the natural, he was still king. In the spiritual, he was already rejected. As a matter of fact, if you look at the scriptures and read it very well, it was essentially two, only, Saul only reigned two years under God. The other 38 years of his reign, he was reigning as a rejected king. But there's something that we need to understand about God, which we don't understand. God cannot have a vacuum. There can never be a vacuum with God. So what God does is instead of create a vacuum which will result in anarchy, he will rather keep a bad king in place while he's training the one that is coming to take over. So for example, when people say, oh, why are women in ministry? Or why are women heading ministry? And I always say to them, shame on the men. God is not going to allow a vacuum. So he will put somebody, whether it's a woman, doesn't matter. He put somebody in that place. Until the man is ready to assume leadership. We, we speak about Deborah, for example. Deborah was a judge in Israel. But Deborah was not supposed to be the judge. Barak just was unable to do it. He, in fact, when Deborah said to him, that God says go. He said, no, 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 no. If you don't go with me, I won't go. And, and, and God told Barak, okay, since that's the guy, Deborah told Barak, well, since that's the case, this is what God says. If I go with you, then a woman will take the glory and not you. And that's what happened. So in the, in the, in the reign of Deborah over Israel, you actually have Deborah and Barak, but Barak at the back, while Deborah was in the forefront. So God does not have a vacuum. When you have a leadership gap, somebody must stay in that gap. Until the true leader comes in. Now, let's go to verse 13 and 14. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that is David, in the midst of his brothers. And note this, the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now, look at verse 14. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. 
So he was a king who had a disturbing spirit upon him. And Saul spent his 38 years pursuing David all over the place. Not being able to rule the nation. Not being able to do anything. In fact, you will recall that at one, at one time, after this had happened, Goliath came and threatened Israel. Is that not so? A king is supposed to protect the nation. King Saul was there. He couldn't do anything. Because Goliath was a spiritual agent of Satan. He, said he was a human being, all right. But the spirit that was pushing him, I think I mentioned it last week, that one of the things that these principalities and powers do is to bring oppression against the people of God. So what Goliath of God was doing was to oppress the people of God. And so he came for 40 years, for 40 days rather, prancing up and down. And nobody could do anything. Because the king, who was King Saul at the time, the Spirit of God had left him. He took Jesse, sending David to the battlefield, and David going in obedience to his father, to hear what Goliath was saying, and for his spirit to be stared at, who is this uncircumcised? David understood what was happening. Even though he was 17 years old, he was a boy. Because of the Spirit of God that was already in him. He said, how can this uncircumcised be challenging the armies, the host of the God of Israel? As far as he was concerned, this was an affront on God. He took that 17-year-old boy to deal with Goliath. It wasn't really a 17-year-old boy doing it. It was the Spirit of God in him that was doing it. How else, how expert can you be in throwing a stone that the stone will get just the only opening in the head of that fellow? That was the Spirit of God at work. So we need to understand the difference between the natural and the spiritual. The spiritual always, always overcomes the natural. Whenever you seek victory in the natural, you must war in the spirit. I don't know if we are going to ever discuss that, but let me just mention it here and now. That our warfare, like the Bible says, is not carnal, is what? Spiritual. It is spiritual. Our warfare is a spiritual warfare. You are not fighting against your mother-in-law. You are fighting against spiritual forces. So let's stop pointing hands at human beings and thinking that they are, they, are, they are not your problem. Go into your closet. And we are breeding lazy Christians in our generation. Go into your closet and begin to pray. And let us see whether that demon will not be defeated. Discouragement is, does not come from God. Discouragement comes from Satan. So when somebody says, I am discouraged... And I begin to wonder, yes, discouragement can come, but it must not stay there to the point that you now enter into depression. Many people are depressed. And once you are in that state of depression, you begin to hear strange voices. And you can end your marriage, you can end your life, you can end the life of your husband and be free. You can end the life of, of your wife and be free. What is this all about anyway? What's this whole thing? Why must, you, why must you insist that you are going to remain married until the end? Kill her! And the man will take a gun and kill her. Or take a knife and butcher. It's after the deed is done that that spirit that was oppressing the fellow leaves the fellow. And the fellow is there. You see him looking like a mumu. But he bears the punishment. Which is why the believer must never lose touch with relationship with the Holy Spirit. You cannot be a Christian and not be listening to the Spirit of God. And if you are unable to listen to the Spirit of God or you don't, have this, you don't even know that there is a Holy Spirit, it is possible that you are not even born again at all. Going to church alone is not the issue. So there's a natural and there's a spiritual. There's a natural timing and a spiritual timing. Even though God was speaking to Daniel, for example, about 490 years, which seemed to be a natural 490 years, it was a spiritual 490 years. God knew that after the death of Christ, there's going to be the age of the Gentiles. But he told everything as though it was one block. And yet, only 483 had been fulfilled. Seven remains. And that seven we know 
to be the end time. That, that period of tribulation and greater tribulation. Luke chapter 19. I'm going to read from verse 11 to 27. Even though verse 11 is really what we would want to uh, sit down on. But we'll, we'll, read it, we'll read the whole thing for uh, fullness. Luke 19, 11 to 27. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Note that. This is the reason why he told this parable. Because people were thinking that the, ki- the kingdom of God was going to appear now. And so he had to tell the parable. In other words, the kingdom of God is not, was not going to appear then. It may appear tomorrow, it may not appear tomorrow. Therefore, he said in verse 12, A certain noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. He's speaking about himself actually in this parable. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten miners, and said to them, Do business till I come or occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, Having received the kingdom, he then commanded the servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Remember what I said. The Lord Jesus is speaking a parable of himself. He has gone to gain a kingdom. He's coming back. When he comes, he's going to ask certain questions. Remember the Bible says that when he ascended, he gave gifts to men. That's what is happening here. In verse 16 it says, Then came the first saying, Master, your mina or your minor has earned ten minors. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your miner has earned five minors. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your miner, which I have kept, put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the miner from him, and give it to him who has ten miners. But they said to him, Master, he has ten miners. So I say to you then, to everyone who, will, who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Praise the name of the Lord. In telling this parable, certain things were being told here. Number one, the kingdom is not going to appear immediately. So what do we do in that time? He says, occupy till I return. Do business till I come. And did he say they should go and do business on their own? No. He gave them what to use to do business. Each and every one of us has been given a, at least one gift. Each one. And you have the propensity, the ability to increase that gift. To, to use, rather, to use the gift to bring increase, to bring profit to the master. There are those who have used that gift and have rigged in people into the kingdom of God. There are those who have used that gift and are teaching people the word of God. But there are those who have gone to hide the gift. They're not even using it. They're not preaching to anybody. They're not talking to anybody about Christ. They are not raising any disciple. They're not making any prayers. They're not contributing anything to the kingdom of God. He says, when that time comes, 
I am going to take whatever I give to that person, give it to those people who are making profit, and cast those people out. And then, I am going to call those people who refuse my reign. That is, those people who refuse to accept Christ and kill all of them. That's basically what that, what, that, what that parable is saying. So he told a parable concerning a spiritual matter and gave us understanding in the natural that whilst he has gone to receive this kingdom, whilst he is in heaven, let us not focus on time. When will he come? When will he not come back? Is this the time? Is that not the time? He says, what should you do? Do business until I come. Make yourself useful until I come. Make yourself profitable until I come. And he has given you what you need to make yourself profitable. But instead of us being fruitfully and usefully occupied in the things of the kingdom of God, what many of us are doing is we are doing our own work. We are doing our own thing. We are like the man who had the miner and hid it in a handkerchief, kept it aside and went about doing his own work. I'm going to read a very interesting scripture to us about people who are busy, but not busy about the kingdom of God. They are very busy. When you ask them, uh, bro, we didn't see you. Just say, ah, pastor, <laughs> I had work to do in my office. It was very serious. It occupied me. Meanwhile, that fellow did not tell anybody that when he was supposed to do that work in the office, he was loafing. And so they had to force him to do that work. So he sacrificed the time he should have used in doing God's work to do the work of man. 1 Kings chapter 20. I'm going to read it a little bit lengthy, but we, are, we want to draw out something from this. It's the story of Ahab when he became king and how Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, came against Ahab. In fact, it's a very interesting story. Maybe you need to read the whole chapter at some point in time. Ben-Hadad came to send messengers to Ahab and said, Look, your, what, what do you call it now? He said, your wonderful, your gold, your silver, your wives, the best of your wives, they are mine. In other words, give them to me. Ahab said, oh, please come and take them. Then he sent again and said, in fact, this is what, I, I'm going to take those ones, so, but there's something else I want. My officers will come into Israel. And enter every noble house. And whatever they find that they like, they will take. So Ahab called his counselor and said, come and see trouble. Look at this king of Syria looking for fight. He said he wants to take my gold and my silver. And take my best wives. I said, come and take. He doesn't stop there. Now he says, he's not only taking that. He wants to now enter every fine house he sees in Israel. And take away whatever his heart delights. So the elders advised said, tell him that you will not accept that one. So... He went and sent back word to Ben-Hadad. I said, the first one you ask for, I will do. But the second one, I'm not going to do. So Ben-Hadad was angry and gathered himself and said, we are going to fight. So he went to war. He went boasting. If Ahab made a, 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 gave a proverb, he said, let the man who is putting on uniform not boast. The man who should be boasting is the man who after the battle is removing his uniform. So anyway, they went to war and Israel defeated Syria. Ben-Hadad was now captured. When they captured Ben-Hadad and brought Ben-Hadad to Ahab, because they told Ben-Hadad, said, ah, the king of Israel is very merciful. If you appeal to him, he will just leave you alone. So they told Ahab that they have uh, uh, captured Ben-Hadad, and that he is begging. He said, eh, is Ben-Hadad alive? I, th I thought they had killed him. He said, ah, call him, bring him, he's my brother, bring him, bring him, bring him. So God was angry with Ben-Hadad, uh, with uh, Ahab. That I, I put somebody for you to kill. You said you are, you, are, you, are, you are bringing him close to you. So this is, that is the story that leads to chapter 35 to 43. Now a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his neighbor by the word of the Lord, Strike me please. And the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, 
because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely, as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. This is a very strange story. The prophet says to him, I want you to give me a blow. The prophet says, you have not offended. Why should I say, blow me? Thus says the Lord, give me a blow. And the man refused. He said, because you have refused to obey the voice of the Lord, a lion will eat you. And the lion ate him. In verse 38, sorry, 37. And he found another man and said, strike me please. So the man struck him, inflicting a wound. 38. Then the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. Now, as the king passed by, he cried out to the king and said, now listen to this. Your servant went out into the midst of the battle and there a man came over and brought a man to me and said, guard this man. Note this so. Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life. Or else you shall pay a talent of silver. While your servant was busy here and there. Note that. He was busy what? Here and there. He was gone. Then the king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. And he hastened to take the bandage away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. Then he said to him, that is the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life, and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house, solemn and displeased, and came to Samaria. What was the problem of, 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 of Ahab? Instead of doing what God wanted him to do, he was doing something else. This prophet used an example and said, we, I, While I was busy here and there, the man they said, God, your life, uh, his life for your life. Instead of you to guard, you did not. You were busy doing other things. Believe you me, brethren, when the Lord Jesus returns, his judgment is going to be severest on the church. You better believe that. Because what the world does not have, you have if you are born again. You have the gift of grace. You have the gift of faith. You have spiritual gifts. You have ministry gifts. You have all kinds of things that God has put at your disposal to be able to serve Him, to be able to do His work. But instead of doing that, what are we doing? We are busy here and there. We are building houses. We are buying cars. We are getting married. Even getting girlfriends in the process. Having children left, right and center. And doing all kinds of things except the work. Of God. Many of you don't know, but every soul that ought to be saved, that is not saved and dies, the person who ought to preach to that soul that died, God will require the blood of that soul at his hands. You know, God told Ezekiel that. that when I send you to a man, I think that's Ezekiel chapter 3 or so, so when I send you to a man who is wicked and say to him that this your wickedness is going to kill you, God says that you should turn away from it. If you tell that man what I told you and he dies in his wickedness anyway, no problem. He has died. But if you refuse to tell him and that man dies in his wickedness anyway, then I will ask, I will require of, at your hands the blood of that man. Brethren, I want you to understand one thing. When we say the work of God, sometimes that expression makes it seem as if it is just a normal work. The work of God is about souls. It's about souls. If what you are doing is not contributing to the winning of souls, you are busy here and there. You have left undone what you should be doing. And the time of judgment is going to come upon that fellow speedily. So whilst we are waiting, we have been given gifts to do the work of God, to bring souls to the kingdom. We are supposed to be busy serving God. Oh, but I'm working 
in a in, in a, I'm in secular employment. Yes, that secular employment is your field. There are people that you meet there. Have you shared the gospel with them? Have you spoken to them about the, about the things of God? Oh, but you don't know where I am. Where I am, nobody. We're not allowed to preach. We're not asking you to preach every time. Are you living the life of Christ? Can people challenge you and say, Why do you do what you are doing? And then use that as an opportunity to say, It is because I serve Christ. No. He said, We are joining them. We are not even giving people the opportunity to say, You are different. What makes you different? And then you can now preach the gospel. But no. We are like them. We do whatever they do. We don't want to be, we don't want to be exposed or known to be fanatical. And the Lord says, Be busy. Be busy. You don't know the time. You don't know the season. You don't know the hour. You don't know the day. So, be busy doing the work of God. At the age of 12, even though Jesus was not strong, mature enough, let me use that expression, to carry on the work of God. He told his earthly parents, when they came and found him in the, in the temple, they had gone to the temple, then they, and then they left, but he, he stayed behind. They had gone three days in the journey. All this God that he wasn't amongst them. They thought he was with other people, playing around like children always do. So they went back to Jerusalem and found him in the temple. Doing what? Discussing with the, with the scribes and the Pharisees, the leaders, the teachers in the church, in the temple. And when they, when they asked him, what are you doing here? Why didn't you come with us? He said, don't you know that I should be about my father's business? If a 12-year-old understood what he should be doing, I ask us, how come you don't understand what you should be doing? How come you don't understand it? Many of the things we do in our churches are making us busy here and there. And not in the work that we ought to be busy doing. Nobody says you shouldn't go and do your secular job. But recognize that there is a platform provided for you. I think I've used this example before. You are a receptionist. Do you know how many people enter an office and the first person they meet is a receptionist? What is your attitude when, you meet, when they meet with you? Are you lazy? Like a Jessica? No attitude that differentiates you from the world? Do you dress like the world? Lewd? It doesn't matter carrying the Bible. Because there's a lot that is spoken of when you are seen. But no, we do what we like. And at the end of the day, we close from work. We collect our pay. And yet the work of God is undone. And then we say, okay, leave. Since you won't talk to them in the office, go to the streets and begin to talk to them. You say, no, we won't talk to them. They brought them to you. You didn't talk to them. Now you go and meet them. You won't talk to them. Believe, brethren, I, 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 I shudder to think of the judgment of God upon us. In the, in the bid to do business or to carry on the business of the kingdom, there are certain things that we must caution you on. Luke chapter 18. Sorry, Luke chapter 17. Sorry, Luke chapter 17. Verse 28 to 33. We read that as our, our second text. Now we want to nose in on some parts and discuss those parts. Luke 17, 28 to 33. Likewise as it was in the days of Lot... They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Things will continue as they always have. There are building projects that people will be engaging in. There are farms that will be planted, industries that will be created, businesses that will be started, websites that will be designed, new ideas that will be fermented and brought up. Even that day, that hour, when Christ will return. It, there's nothing special about that. I will warn you to say, this is the day. Verse 30. Even so, 
will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed? Nothing will warn you that this is the day. In verse 31 it says, In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take, to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. What are they returning to do? To take the things that they had. Is that not so? To take their possessions. And then in verse 32 he says something. What, what is the statement that he made there? Remember Lord's wife. What is about Lord's wife? This was a woman. She, it wasn't because of her that they escaped the fire of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was actually because of the intercession of Abraham and the hospitality of Lot. For we know that even Lot, uh, was it that? He, 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 was, he was delayed. The angels had to drag him out. Now here was a woman who was rescued from the fire of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they warned her, as you are going, they warned all of them, as you are going, do not look back. Don't look back. She actually escaped the fire of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then while going, she turned back and became a pillar of salt. A remembrance for all to see that you should not trifle with the commandment of God. Why did she do it? Verse 31 is what gives us inkling. And 33 also gives us... So let's read 33 and then we put it together and then we, we see. Let's read 31 to 33 now. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods, his possessions... And in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lord's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will what? Lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. What many of us own, possessions and other things, our lives are intertwined with those things. If anything were to go wrong with those things, we are destabilized. And the Lord is warning us, do not be attached to the world. Let the world go. Let go of your possessions. Let go of the things of the world. Not only the things of the world. There are many of us who are hurting. We can't let go of hurts. We keep the hurts and keep it on and on. And it builds up until it builds into resentment, to bitterness and hatred. You can't enter the kingdom that way. Let go of your hurts. And then there are those who have hang-ups. They can't let go of their hang-ups. Every time they want to go forward, the hang-ups always makes them to turn back. I don't like this. Oh, I don't like that. I don't like it this way. The kingdom of God is not about what you like or not like. It is about what God likes and what God does not like. It, you are not involved in that thing. Because of hang-ups, people have actually left churches. Because of hang-ups, people have gotten angry with other people and lost their salvation. Not only hang-ups, what of hangovers? There are those of us who have hangovers of yesteryears. We keep reminiscing. Oh, in those days. Ah, the good old days. When I will preach and thousands will come to the Lord. Hangovers, and we are hanging over those things and reminiscing on them. Reminiscing on them. Meanwhile, there are newer works to be done, newer fields to be conquered, and we leave them thinking only about the past. Let go of your hangovers. You need to let go of your habits, ungodly habits. Many of us have ungodly habits. Some 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 people just have the habit of hating people. They they, they have developed it over the years. They have not killed the flesh. The reason why your ungodly habits are still there is because the flesh is still breathing. And very much alive. Brethren, anything that can make God to overlook you at his coming, you must let it. It's not going to stand you in any good stead. So don't keep holding on to it. Luke chapter 12, 13 to 21. Luke 12, 13 to 21. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Then he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter, arbitrator rather, over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life 
does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Note that. Your life is not about possessions. Your life is not about what you have. Even your degrees, that's not your life. The life is talking about eternal life has nothing to do with your degrees. It has nothing to do with what you own. It has nothing to do with the offices and the titles you have acquired over the years. Eternal life has everything to do with Christ. His finished work on the cross and the grace of God upon your life. Verse 16, then he spoke a parable to them saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will, put, I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will, that, will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Have you seen this fellow? Even the man who was asking the question. Some people come to church and all they want is for pastor to pray for the inheritance that their father left behind to come to them. The work of God is undone, but they want to focus on their own work. Look at this man. He increased in, in crops, and he actually went on a building construction project. He pulled down the old barn and began to rebuild a new one. And God waited for him to finish the building. He finished the building, put all the goods in, and now told the soul, relax. Now the, 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 the crops are safe. We have many years to enjoy this. It was that night that God came for him. Let me tell you something, brethren. We say Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. He, he may not come when we expect him to come. But once you die, he has come as far as your own matter is. Your matter is ended. So the question is, like we sang in the hymn, what will you be remembered by? What are you remembered by in heaven? Where it matters the most. Not on the earth. They change people's names. I remember when we were young, there was a street in Lagos called Broad Street. Then Yakubu Gawan became head of state. And they changed the name of that broad street to Yakubu Gawan Street. When Murtala Mohammed became head of state in 1975, one of the things he did was to change the name back to broad street. It is broad street today. So you want your name to be on the street. They can remove it. Anybody can remove your name. The world can forget you. The question is, will heaven also forget you? The hymn says, only, we are only going to be remembered by the works we have done. What works have you done that heaven will remember you by? What have you done between now and when Christ will return? We have, we have given the field to Satan. And he's just doing what he likes. And we are folding our hands. And being busy here and there. Sometimes Satan even gives us assignment to do. And we go ahead and do it. We want to build the largest auditorium in the, in, 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 in the world. So even the one we have built is not enough. We break it down. We expand. We build more. We keep building. We keep building. He's giving us work to do. Meanwhile, souls are perishing. Churches are, churches are proud now to, to, to state the billions they have used in building construction. And there are some missionaries in the villages in Ogoni land who are barely able to eke out a living in one day. Tending to souls that are not even standing firm. We are not sending money to them. We are putting it in concrete. And our churches are filled with people who don't even know the word of God. The world may know you, but does Christ know you? I think I've read this before. Let's go back. Let's just do a digression there. Revelation chapter 3. Verse 1. Revelation 3 verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, This thing says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. The world may be, may be blowing your trumpet and telling how wonderful you are and you may be a, 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 a absorbing it and thinking that you are doing great works. But the question is, what does heaven say about what you are doing? Is that the work that heaven gave you to do? 
Let's be careful that we are doing what heaven has asked us to do and not what delights us. I have discovered in my own small experience that heaven asks us to do what we may not be excited about, which is why heaven gives us the resources to accomplish such tasks. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through to 17, we are warned about the world and the things in the world. 1 John chapter 2, 15 to 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There can be a clearer statement. We get excited about so many things when they are applauding us. But heaven says, no, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in, me, is not in you. If you love the accolades of men, the love of the Father is not in you. Paul said that much in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I speak to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a born servant of Christ. It's as clear as that. If your goal is to please men and receive the accolades of men, then definitely you're not a servant of Christ. You're serving yourself and serving those men. In verse 16 it says, For all this is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. The lust of the flesh desires Anything I want, I want this, I want this. I, I want to fulfill my desire. I want to fulfill my ambition. I want to be this. I want to be the president of Nigeria. I, is that what God wants you to be? No. The loss of the eyes. Whatever my eyes see, I want covetousness. The pride of life. Boastful about what we have. What we have become. You don't know me. I have four degrees. I'm, 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 I'm a doctorate candidate. I have a doctorate. I'm a professor of this. It doesn't carry water anywhere. The Bible says it's of the world. And therefore, an anathema where God is concerned. In verse 7 it says, And the world is passing away, and the loss of it, all those things are passing away. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Question, are you doing the will of God? That's the question. In Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, reading from verse 57 to 62. Luke chapter 9, 57 to 62. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road, that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you in church because of accommodation problem? Are you looking for accommodation? Is that why you are in church? You are looking for support? Is that why you are in church? The Lord Jesus said about himself, I am the Son of Man, the Son of God. I don't even know where I'm going to lay my head. Foxes have holes. Birds have nests that they go to. But I don't know where I'm going to sleep tonight. So if you think that following me will give you accommodation, forget it. It may not. Wherever I give you, lie down there. Verse 59. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. There are things to do, yes. But not all of them are crucial. Is he saying you shouldn't perform your obligatory functions? Do perform them. But sometimes, at some of these meetings that we go for, whether it's burial or naming ceremony, or this, we are not even, we, nobody even remembers that you were there. But you will kill yourself to go. You will sew a new dress. The money that should have been used to propagate the gospel, the time and energy you should have used to preach the gospel, to pray, to, to study the word of God, you spent it going to sew a dress for a funeral, for a baby dedication. The Lord is saying, you better go and preach the gospel. You have been busy here and there. It's not going to stand you in any good stead anyway. Verse 61, and another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, 
is fit for the kingdom of God. There are many unfit people, even in the pulpit. Many of us are looking back while our hands are on the plow. Our hands are actually on the plow. But we're looking back, trying to settle this, trying to settle that, trying to settle. So when God says, go here, we can't go because we have investments behind. We can't go because we love the flock. There are pastors that God has told them, leave your congregation. I want to send you to the missionary field. Don't even take money from them. Go. I will take care of you there. They can't leave. Even if the man wants to go, the wife will tell him, there, we spent our entire life, I spent it with you building this thing. You can't go anywhere. Let us stay. And they stay. And they get to heaven and God says to them, where are you coming from? They say, ah, we did your work. They say, which work? The one you did or the one I told you to do? Have you forgotten? Matthew chapter 7, 21 to 23, where they, where they said, but we cast out demons in your name. We preached in your name. We prophesied in your name. We did miracles in your name. Were they doing bad things? But they said, I didn't even know you. Who asked you to do them? I didn't ask you to do anything. Workers of iniquity. Lawless people. That's what they said to them. Ephesians 5, verse 1 to 21. And we just read an admonition by the Lord to you and I. Ephesians 5, from verse 1 to 21. Therefore, be imitators of God as their children. And walk in love. As Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. This is like summarizing everything we've said. In the time that we are waiting for the Lord to return, sort yourself out. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. I want you to note in verse 5, he uses the noun to describe these people. Fornicator is one who fornicates. It is something he does regularly. An unclean person is unclean in all he does and says. An idolater is a covetous man. In verse 6 says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It's covetousness, idolatry, fornication, adultery, masturbation. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon them. Don't preach grace. Don't use grace as an excuse for what you are doing. What you are doing is contrary to the word of God. It is a sin. And the wrath of God rests upon you. Grace will not save you. Because the Bible says that the grace of God that appeared to all men teaches us that we should deny what? Ungodliness and worldliness. And that we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present age. Verse 7, Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness. Not that you were once in darkness. You were darkness itself. You were once darkness, but now you are light. You are not in light, but you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Live children of light, they see. Children of light, show forth light. Children of light, understand truth. They speak truth and they, they explain truth. They dispense truth. There's no deception in them. The Bible says that God is light and in Him there's no shadow of darkness at all. So if you're a child, you have light, there should be no shadow of darkness at all in you. Verse 9. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. That's how we walk in light. Find out what is right. What, Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, what is acceptable to you? Imagine Saul of Tarsus being struck down by the Lord. And the Lord reveals himself to him. 
And the first thing he says when he gets up is, Lord, what would you have me to do? How come we don't ask that question? What we ask is, Lord, what will you give to me? Verse 11. And have no fellowship. Do not partake. That's what it means. Don't take a share with the unfruitful works of darkness. But rather, expose them. Many of us have friends who engage in all kinds of silly things. And we are covering them up. By refusing to go for those meetings, you are inadvertently exposing them. By going, even when you go there and you speak against what they are doing, you are exposing what they are doing to be wrong. But no, we keep quiet. We even go there and laugh with them. Say, well, I'm not drinking it. I heard of somebody who says she's a prophetess. People go to her to hear the word of God at her mouth. She sells beer. And when she was confronted, she said, but I'm not drinking it. What are you doing? You are dispensing iniquity and you say you are not doing it. Instead of depopulating hell, you are increasing it. And you say you are not doing it. Verse 12. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. In fact, indeed, if you were light, you would expose it. Do you know that one of the reasons why people will persecute you if you are a Christian, that is if you are living right, is because your lifestyle is exposing their ungodly lifestyle. Even in the church, they will say to you, are you the only one? Spirit, 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 spirit. Because what you are doing is actually showing them that it can be done, but you refuse to do it. And so they want to make you not to do it. So they call you names. And when you acquiesce to those names, you give in to them and you are overcome by them and overrun by them. Whereas you should be overcoming them. They should be the ones hiding from you and say, he has come again. Verse 14, therefore, he that is God says, awake you who sleep. Arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Stop looking for time. Use every opportunity to do something right. Redeem the time. We've said it. Time cannot be stored. Time cannot be stretched. Time cannot, you cannot save time. 3.30 this afternoon is gone forever. Whatever you needed to do at 3.30 that was not done is gone forever. So when it says redeem the time, make the best of every time because not, you can't save time. You can't store it. You can't stretch it. Everybody has 24 hours a day. Sometimes you have to sleep only 3 hours a day. You do it only 3 hours sleep to do the work of God. Today we, we believe that we do, the work of God is to be done out of convenience. No, sir. There's a time period in which to do the work of God after which it is late to do it. Night has come. And it is late to do the work of God. You will need to prepare a sermon. Prepare the sermon when you should be preparing it. Spend time praying and talking to God even before you present the sermon. Hear what God wants to say. Say it as God wants, said, wants it said. Do the best. Put everything into what you are doing. Do the work of God with gusto, with fervency, with diligence. Not with mediocrity. Not with lacklusterness. 17. Therefore, do not be unwise. But understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Giving thanks always for all things to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. It continues, you can read the rest to chapter 6. The things that we ought to be doing whilst we are waiting. It addresses 22 down to the end to 32. Addresses husbands and wives. It says, wives, submit to your husband. Husbands, love your wives. In, in, in chapter 6, it talks about children. It talks about house boys and house girls. And then even mentions the fact that you have to wage war. And that you should put on the whole armor of God 
in this period whilst we are waiting. Let's be Christians indeed. Let's stand firm in God. Whenever God speaks, unless we understand God's manner of speech, we would invariably misrepresent Him. Or rather, we would represent what He said and would end up with the wrong conclusions and wrong lifestyles, which is unprofitable for us. For instance, and I've said this earlier, Romans chapter 4 verse 17 says, God calls those things which do not exist as though they did. And many, not knowing that God speaks of things that don't yet exist as though they already did, focus on the now rather than on its appearing and end up frustrated, disconcerted, and turn to all manner of strange doctrines and activities. And some even give up working with God entirely. God tells you to start a church. You start a church. You have your own. God tells you the church is going to grow. And you expect the church to grow tomorrow. After, after a few months, you don't see that growth. What do you do? The fellow gets up and goes to a meeting, a herbalist. He says, God told me that the church will grow. Give me something. How can a herbalist do the work of God? We get involved with all kinds of strange things. Because we don't understand how God speaks. He said, I want to spend time knowing how God speaks and understand the word of God. We spend time doing strange and crazy things. Some have even given up on God. I met one young man today. He had a Bible with him. I was shocked. I said, what are you doing with the Bible? Are you reading it? I said, no, you just brought it. Which church do you go to? I used to go to Susan's church. I don't go anymore. What happened? I just stopped. So I began to talk to him. I said, it appears you don't even understand why you should be in church. I'm sure you just went to church. He said, yes. I said, good. You don't understand. You must be saved. The church is not an end in itself. It is a means to an end. The church is a resource base. But first, you must be saved. After you are born again and you go to church, you become a part of the family of God and they teach you what you need to know. As you mature, you also are part of that body and you now teach the younger ones. It's like a family where you have an older brother, you yourself, you are there in the middle and you have younger ones. You emulate your older brother and your younger ones emulating you. You turn around to correct your younger brothers. You, you, you learn from your older brother who corrects you. That's the church of God. Sadly, we have turned it into the place where we go to get problems solved. Where we go to pray so that we can have money. Where we go to pray so that we can get a business. Some are even praying hellish prayers. You are going to be involved in a criminal activity. And you go and pray and ask for God's protection over the criminal activity. How does that work? You are going to pay a bribe. Oh Lord, let them not catch me while I'm praying that bribe. What kind of prayer is that? God does not want us to be ignorant of things like this. And then fall away. God does not want us to go to church. And then go to hell. God does not want us to think that we are doing what is right. And then we fail. The time for the return of the Lord is at hand. Yes. But that does not mean that it will happen tomorrow. Although it just might. It could happen now. Because of this many people have heeded the words of Satan. And have become scoffers themselves. Of the second, second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what many people have done. Even those who used to serve God are now scoffing. Ingo, Ingo, come back. Ingo, when did they come back? I don't tire for this kind of thing. I gave my life so many years ago, expecting that he will return. And then he didn't return. What, am I, what is the value of my life? What is the value of my giving, myself, my, my giving my life to him? Do you think you're doing God a favor by getting born again? From our study, we have seen that when God responded to Daniel's intercession, as regards the 70 years of Jeremiah's prophecy, he was told that there was in reality a 77th of 490 years. Of the 490 years, 69 sevens have been accomplished. But... There remains a final seven years. See how God speaks. See how the spiritual works. See how the natural functions. This break in the fulfillment of God's work 
with regards to Israel is to allow the Gentiles to come to Christ. The long-suffering of God is to allow many to be saved. Again, we've seen that when Adam was told that he will die in the day that he eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, even though Adam lived another 90 plus years after eating of that tree, he died spiritually instantly. Then and then he died. Many people think that because they didn't drop dead after they sinned and they are still breathing, that means that God has forgotten. They need to go and ask Reuben. Reuben slept with his, with his father's wife, one of his father's wives. The man heard of it and kept quiet. And he thought it was over. On the deathbed of Jacob, when Jacob was going to begin to bestow his inheritance, the blessings upon his children, it was a curse that Reuben got. He said, because you went and slept with my wife, you are cursed. Many of us will find it very tough when we stand before God and we hear him say to us, depart, you workers of iniquity. That's why while we have breath in us, we must make certain that we don't hear such things. We must change our ways. Enough of all this misbehavior. Just because my pastor doesn't talk about it, does it make it right? My pastor doesn't say anything wrong about it. Is your pastor God in, in our church? Our general pastor doesn't talk about those things. So what? Does the word of God not talk about it? And from the time that Adam sinned, not only did he die spiritually, from that time forward, man became separated from God. There are some things that we are doing today that is going to affect millions of people. Some things that we are not, going to, that we are not doing now that we ought to do of the work of God that is keeping many people in bondage, millions in bondage. There are some things that we are doing that we ought not to do. Being busy here and there and we are putting thousands and millions in captivity to Satan because we are not at our duty post. Similarly, although King Saul was still the king of Israel in the natural, in the spiritual, a 17-year-old David was now the king of Israel. He was now the defender and protector of the nation. Thus, it was he who had to come to defeat Goliath of Gath and rescue Israel. said it earlier. The spiritual and natural, they, 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 don't, they are not together. Somebody may have a title in the natural, and yet in the spiritual he is not recognized. Somebody, somebody may be without a title in the natural, and yet in the spiritual he is recognized. Therefore, since the time of God is not known to man, the question then is, what must we do? In that time, we are not, we're not, we're not told to wait and be looking for the time. We're not told to search for the time. We're not told to, told to investigate. Instead, the Lord Jesus said, it is not for you to know the time or seasons that the Father has put in his authority. So, but you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, and on to the ends of the earth. What are we to do in that time? He has given us the answer. Occupy till I come. I put seven things here. One, stop seeking to know the time which God has said by his own. Stop that search. It is futile. It is useless. It's a wasted effort. It does not help you anything. Stop searching for the time when uh, Jesus will return. Secondly, wait patiently for God's time. Wait. Don't search for it. Just wait for it. Thirdly, don't just wait around doing nothing. Get busy doing the work of God. Preach the word of God. Pray. Give to the work of God. Go to the work of God. Do all that the Father asks you to do. Get busy. Occupy till I come, he said so. Be busy till I come. Don't just sit around doing nothing. And don't be busy here and there. Be busy doing the work of God. Four, don't get carried away with the offerings of this world, the things that this world offers. Don't get seduced into wanting to possess everything you see. And don't become boastful of who you are or what you have. 
Number five, remember Lot's wife. So let go of the world. Lot's wife actually went out, but couldn't enter. She, was, she, she, she got stuck in limbo and perished. Don't find yourself in limbo and be diverted to hell. Let go of the world. Let go of hurts. Let go of hang-ups. Let go of hangovers over yesteryears. Let go of ungodly habits. Indeed, let go of anything that can make you want to look back. Remember, those who put their hands on the plow, but turn back. They are not fit for the kingdom of God. Number six, remember that the Lord's last, that the Lord's last command was what? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He didn't say, return ye. What did he say? Go ye. There's no place where he said, return ye. He said, go. If you ever hear anything close to return ye, he said, come ye apart a while and then go back. The, I've told you, I think we said this last week, the time for repose for a Christian is when he gets to heaven. There is no repose here on earth. We work and work till Christ returns or till we go to be with the Lord. There's so much work to be done and so many of us are hanging around doing nothing. Some are carrying so much load. Others are carrying nothing at all. And finally, make sure that you are keeping yourself pure. Make sure that you are humble and make sure that you continue to love all men. I've said this before, I continue to say it. These three things must be in you. Otherwise, everything we have said is not, is not going to count anywhere. Purity, humility, and charity. Purity, humility, and charity. I use PHC to know it. Portacot, that's the, that's the uh, whatever, what, what we call Portacot, PHC. Purity, humility, and charity. That's what God has called us to. And that's what we should have at the back of our mind. With that in place, go and continue to do God's business till he returns. Continue to do his work till he comes. Brethren, when we are talking about timing, we are talking about God's time. Remember, we are in a period of grace. 483 years have already passed. Seven years left and God created a, a gap. I said, wait, before we begin the seventh year, let's save the Gentiles. And now is the time of the Gentiles. You and I have been saved. What of the others who are yet to be saved? I, re- I read something on, on, on um, in LinkedIn for the first time. I, I liked something on LinkedIn. The guy was saying something to the fact that maybe if we stop looking at human beings and start looking at souls, we will think differently about the kingdom. The kingdom is about souls. Let's look at souls. Stop looking at the man who, who beat you yesterday. The man who abused you the day before yesterday. Look at his soul. Don't look at the man who is smoking in their hand and is, and is busy in his baby. Look at his soul. The Bible says in Psalm 49, nobody can, rans- can pay ransom for one soul. Not even all the wealth in the world can ransom one soul. Let us pray. Brethren, the Lord Jesus is warning us as we enter strange times, as we enter times of difficulty, as we enter these tumultuous times in the world, we need to be very careful. Let's, let's not be busy about nothing. Some of, us, some of us are very busy, but we are not busy about the things of God. God is warning us, be careful, be careful. Some of us are so busy looking for when Christ will return. And we have forgotten the matters of purity, of humility, and of charity. Some of us are so caught up with the time when the Lord will return. We are no longer able to have patience to wait. Some have plans and ambitions to build houses, their own houses, to buy cars, and yet the things of God are left undone. Many of us are offended. We are hurting. Many of us have hang-ups. We have hangovers. We have bitter, we have ungodly habits. And these things are not going to take us into, king, into the kingdom of God. We need to drop them. Remember Lot's wife. She didn't drop the things that she should have dropped. She kept looking back and became a pillar of salt. 
Or rather, she looked back and became a pillar. So many of us have been looking back over and over again. One day we move, we do the things of God. The next day, we are, back, we are backsliding. But for all that we have said this evening, I'd like to say this. If you have not yet accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you have not yet repented of sin, if you don't see yourself as a sinner based on the sin of Adam and your own sins, then you need, to, you need to talk to God about that. And if you want, I'm here to pray with you. You want to give your life to Christ this evening? You can come to the front here. I'll pray with you. Even if you're the only one, it doesn't matter. Just get up from your seat. Come here. I'm going to pray with you. There's no need coming to church, hearing all that you have heard, and returning with your sin in you, and you say that you are all right. You are not all right. You are not all right. An urgent message is going out to you this evening. If you know that you are not saved, if you have just been coming to church, and you have not at any time surrendered your life to Jesus, you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, you have not acknowledged yourself as a sinner and Jesus Christ as your Savior, please come to the front now so that we can pray together. The rest of us, let's keep talking to God about our lives. Are we doing the work of God? Are you preaching the gospel of Christ? I'm not talking of just preaching any gospel. I mean the gospel of Christ, the gospel that brings men out of darkness into light. Is that what you are preaching? Are you doing the work of God? Are you viewing this thing from the point of the, of the natural or from the standpoint of the spiritual? Remember, even though you are in the natural, you are a spiritual being. And you must view things from the perspective of the spiritual. The time when the Lord will return is not known to anybody. Let's not waste time and energy pursuing something that is not going to stand us in any good stead. Instead, let's spend time seeking the will of God. Seeking the wisdom of God. Seeking to do the work of God. Oh, brethren, talk to the Lord. We are wasting so much time being busy here and there. The real thing that we should be busy about, we are not doing it. And the Lord is warning us. The kingdom of God is at hand. The time of the return of the Lord is at hand. Be busy about the things of God. Find out what God wants you to do and then do it. Leave your hang-ups behind. Leave your hangovers behind. There are many people who have served God who had challenges in their lives. They had to pack those challenges behind and went ahead to do the work of God. People have left the issue of, I have no money. They've trekked to go and do the work of God. Some people have withdrawn their children from school because they cannot afford to pay school fees. But they sought to do the work of God. And God still met them at the point of need. Eventually. Brethren, there is no excuse that you can make. There is no excuse that any one of us has. For not being busy about the work of God. Not your secular job. Not your commitment to family. Nothing at all. It is either you want to seek God. Or you don't want to seek Him. It is either you want to serve God. Or you don't want to serve Him. It is either you want to do His work. Or you don't want to do his work. There's nobody that will be able to stand before God and give an excuse. Because he knows every man's heart. You cannot hide under anything. That's why I keep saying, stop giving me excuses. Go and tell God. Tell God why you are not doing what he wants you to do. Don't tell me. Tell God why you are not busy about his work. Don't tell me. Father, I want to thank you for your word. Father, I want to bless your name. Today, Almighty and everlasting God, as we speak to you and continually meditate on this word that we have heard. Father, help us to be busy about your work. This desire to be busy about other things, Father, come and kill it within us so that all we have time for will be your work 
and any legitimate business that you want us to do here on the earth. Thank you, everlasting Father. Blessed be your name, Lord. In Jesus' name we have prayed. Amen. God bless you all.